Why are property rights so important? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Malcolm Lavoie. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Malcolm Lavoie. Malcolm has been part of the University of Alberta Faculty of Law since 2015. His research deals with property law, Aboriginal law, and the intersection between private law and constitutional law. His research has appeared in numerous publications and has been cited by the Supreme Court of Canada. He served as a law clerk for the Honourable Justice Franz Slatter of the Alberta Court of Appeal from 2012 to 2013, and later for the Honourable Justice Rosalie Abella of the Supreme Court of Canada from 2013 to 2014. Malcolm has acted as counsel to First Nations transitioning to self-government, as well as consulting on commercial litigation matters. He has also argued before the Supreme Court of Canada, recently defending interprovincial trade in Canada with the infamous Como case. He currently serves as a member of the Alberta Judicial Council. Malcolm, welcome to The Curious Task. It's a pleasure to be here, Alex. And it's great to have you on. So in each episode, we just ask a question and go wherever the answers take us. Today, our question is, why are property rights so important? And we're basing a lot of our conversation today on one of your papers, Property and Local Knowledge, which was released online recently. So let's start by dealing with each of the concepts that are talked about in your paper. Um, but before we talk about local knowledge, and property. I want to talk about just local knowledge. Mm -hmm. So let's start with that. What do you mean by local knowledge? Sure. Yeah. Local knowledge is, is sort of any form of knowledge where someone has privileged access to it by virtue of being in physical proximity to something or being involved in an activity um, with that thing. Um, and, and it's useful. And so I'm drawing quite a bit here on the work of um, Friedrich Hayek, uh, which uh, I, I assume the podcast is no stranger to, to his work. That's uh, where, where the title comes from. Um, and so he draws this useful distinction um, between scientific knowledge on the one hand and what he calls knowledge of the particular circumstances of time and place on the other. And so scientific knowledge is knowledge um, most often of uh, sort of predictions of physical phenomena um, where uh, the, the phenomena are, are, are simple enough that um, they can be predicted on the basis of the sort of knowledge that an expert might have. So if you think of something like the laws of electromagnetism, um, in a situation like that, you know, a distant expert is in a better position to make predictions about electromagnetic phenomena uh, than, say, a layperson who happens to be um, on the ground. Importantly, and I think it's not recognized enough, um, not all knowledge is like that. A lot of useful knowledge um, isn't the kind of knowledge where a distant expert um, uh, has a privileged position. And in fact, it's, it's the sort of knowledge where someone who's on the ground is more likely um, to, to, to know about it. Um, and so these are things that you pick up simply by being in proximity with something or by being in an, involved in an activity. Um, so it might be helpful to think of some examples. So imagine someone uh, who, who owns a house, right? Um, there's a whole trove of information that you gain um, just by living in a home, being aware of it, being in charge of, of, of managing it. Um, you know, some might seem trivial, 
but collectively they can be quite important. So you might think of things like, um, you know, will the furnace have to be replaced soon? How are the bedrooms best allocated? What do I need to do to avoid having conflicts with uh, the neighbors? Um, what kinds of renovations might be feasible? What kinds of renovations might be worthwhile, both for me or for others who might um, end up uh, living in this house? Um, and you can think of similar examples um, for you know, business owners, um, you know, farmers who might be familiar with the characteristics of a particular field, what types of uh, crops could be grown there, uh, not just the physical characteristics of the field, but also, you know, the, the, the skill set of the local farm labor force, let's say. Um, all of this information um, is it's actually immense. Um, and it's something that it, it would be, Hayek argues, impossible um, and I, and, I, and I think I agree with that. It would be impossible for a centralized decision maker to be constantly going around collecting this knowledge and then trying to direct how um, physical resources are going to be uh, uh, managed. And so what the sort of basic insight is, is that there's this body of knowledge, this body of mostly sort of practical knowledge that's highly contextual. Um, that's highly linked to physical context, physical circumstances, um, activities that people are engaged in. Um, and that knowledge is, is necessarily dispersed. And it's really costly and maybe impossible for a, a, say, distant bureaucracy to go around and collect all that knowledge so as to inform decision making. I think that's a great jumping off point. And I also want to throw in there um, one thing that your paper brings up too is I guess it's sort of like a, a subset or maybe another thing to consider when it comes to local knowledge is you talk a bit about tacit knowledge too. And I like the way you spent a few sentences on that. It's, it's sort of this idea that there's also like local knowledge that it, it's hard to communicate exactly what it is too. Like how, how does one explain what their tacit knowledge is? I, I thought that was interesting. The paper went into that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, here again, I'm sort of drawing on um, some important work uh, from 20th century uh, philosophers, uh, M Michael Polanyi, um, primarily, um, this idea that there are, uh, it's also um, an important theme in the work of um, Michael Oakeshott, um, this idea that there are certain kinds of knowledge um, that uh, you, you, you learn without it being explained to you, you learn it by doing, um, and that you know without yourself necessarily being able to explain it. Um, and so an interesting way, a sort of useful way to think about this is the difference between um, the sort of directions contained in a recipe uh, for making something on the one hand and what it takes to actually be a good cook on the other. Um, you don't become a good cook by reading lots of recipe books. There's an important component of that knowledge that is essentially tacit, um, that you pick up by doing it, um, you know, knowledge of sort of, into, you know, sort of intuition of when you need to stir something, um, when you need to, uh, how, what the consistency of a particular sauce should be at a particular time things that no one ever tells you, but that you pick up along the way and that you would have a hard time actually explaining um, in words to others. And so that kind of knowledge um, is particularly likely to be um, decentralized, to be localized. You know, if you're talking about tacit knowledge of a 
parcel of land, let's say, something that the only the owner knows and that the owner herself would struggle to explain, um, then you're talking about something that's really, really difficult um, for some distant bureaucracy or expert to be taking account of. Um, and I think there are important there's an important body of knowledge that's like that. Not all local knowledge is necessarily purely tacit knowledge, mm-hmm. um, uh, but, but some of it is. And uh, that's part of the challenge um, that you have when you try to, say, centralize decision-making um, wh- when you're trying to make, when, when decisions depend upon knowledge that's necessarily decentralized. I, I do like the idea that we're all sort of like the possessors of a bunch of local knowledge that us or a limited few few people like have, you know, like w- why you would know, uh, you know, which room is best cooled by the AC in my house. Like you wouldn't know that, right? But I know it. So it's like, it's, it's, it's just kind of this interesting thing that we have so much dispersed knowledge about all these little things. Someone might practically know what makes up my kitchen or my house, like theoretically, as you were saying, I can send them blueprints. I can, you know, when it comes to little details and little things, which boards squeak, whether that roof shingle needs to be replaced, that this, this is really what we're talking about. Yeah, small things and big things, right? And it's an immense, an immense body of knowledge that's like that. So everything from, you know, what, what room is best cooled, um, uh, all the way up to what are some of the potential uses that, that one could make of this property. So if you're talking about um, uh, a property that has commercial app, commercial uses, if you're familiar with the neighborhood, if you're familiar with the land, you're familiar with you know who are the potential customers in this neighborhood, um, you might have ideas that would be better than the ideas anyone else would have, even some uh, you know someone who studied, sort of abstract theories of business in, in business school, let's say, you might just know better than anyone um, what kinds of businesses could succeed there, right? You know, you mm-hmm. might see, you might uh, notice that all of a sudden there's a lot of young men with beards walking around um, and conclude that maybe it's time for another craft brewery in this neighborhood. <laughs> um, that, that's a facetious kind of example. It's a good one, But though. there's a million things like that, Right where um, we are in a privileged epistemic position uh, to sort of put it in, in uh, sort of fancy terms. We just know certain things better than anyone else. Um, and you know, Hayek argues, and I agree, that um, all of us are in a privileged epistemic position vis-a-vis others for at least some kinds of information. Um, and when you have knowledge that's dispersed like that, um, you want to have mechanisms to to harness it right and and you know, we're sort of getting ahead of, i'm getting, getting a bit ahead of myself here um uh, you know that's that's kind of where property rights come in and we'll get to that in, in just a sec i do want to pivot over to uh, getting a bit more technical into your paper so you said an exhaustive categorization of forms of local knowledge is likely not possible however one can identify a number of different categories so i'd like to read them a bit real quick yeah. so we can do a cursory discussion of them uh number one was knowledge about the physical characteristics of the resource uh, unless you feel you want to add more i think we've covered that in, in a lot of our discussion um th- the next one was knowledge about local conditions relevant to the use of the resource we touched on that a bit but maybe you could give a few more examples or talk a bit more about why that's so important as so well. one of the examples that i draw upon um in the paper you know part of the problem with talking about this kind of thing is that property rights are are so pervasive in our society that we tend to take this knowledge channeling function of property for granted um, but you can look to certain historical examples instances where um, attempts were made to manage physical resources on a large scale without the benefit of the knowledge channeling function 
of, of property um, and what it was that those centralized bureaucracies missed. And obviously the most prominent historical examples would be um, the, the collectivization of agriculture in China and the Soviet Union in the 20th century, two mm -hmm. of the largest, greatest hu human-caused disasters in human history in terms of the number of people who died. Um, you know, people tend to think, oh, that, you know, that's something that happened far away. In fact, there was a, a, a somewhat analogous um, thing that happened with respect to um, indigenous people, uh, where you had, especially in the 19th century, these um, Indian affairs bureaucracies that were set up um, and that started trying to make land use and, and other decisions about First Nations communities in Canada and the United States without the benefit of that local knowledge. And so mm -hmm. I draw upon one example, the, the, the sort of uh, home farms um, uh, era in prairie agriculture. And what happened was you had um, uh, this, this sort of Indian affairs bureaucracy that attempted to, um, through this bureaucracy, establish farming operations um, in, in First Nations communities. And it was a total disaster. Not, not because they wanted it to be, they, they wanted these farms to succeed, but because they were making decisions um, through this you know, federal bureaucracy headquartered in Ottawa with no, without the benefit of any, of the, any, any local knowledge um, about what it would take to make these farms succeed. And so one example of that that I think goes to local conditions is the choice of crops. Um, one of the the main crops that um, and this is this is sort of interesting interesting work. It, it comes from uh, uh, the the book by uh, Sarah Carter called uh, Lost Harvests. Um, one of the sort of errors we can point to after the fact is that they pushed the growing of wheat on these farms, and 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 um, there were a few problems with that. One was uh, that strains of wheat that existed at that time didn't have short enough growing seasons to really succeed on the prairies. Um, and so that's an element of local conditions that I think um, you, you would be lacking. Um, and the other problem was that there weren't grist mills um, uh, on the prairies, and so uh, which you sort of need to, to process wheat once you've harvested it. And so there were, there, there were accounts of First Nations people who didn't have enough to eat while there were bags of grain there that they simply couldn't process through grist mills. I think that's another sort of element of local conditions that, that um, if you're going to grow wheat, um, one of the conditions you want to be aware of is whether you're going to be able to um, uh, process it into flour. Um, and so those are the types of things I'm talking about when I refer to local conditions. Um, what, are, what, are the what are the sort of contextual factors? What are the things um, about this area that you might know um, it, it, that, that would help inform your decisions about the use and management of a resource. And I think that also overlaps into one of your points here that another category is a, the knowledge about activities or processes that enhance the use of the resource. I, I think at the very least, it, as you said, it's not an exhaustive list by any means, but I think it's, it's a great way to get people thinking of it. So to, to read out the rest of the list, just so people can hear about and think about it. So we were, you know, Malcolm did talk about knowledge about the needs and preferences of those who are likely to use the resource, knowledge about complementary goods that can be used in connection with the physical resource, and then knowledge about local norms relevant to the use of the resource in human society. So again, not an exhaustive list, but, but here's all the things that come with local knowledge. W one idea that's been put forward by many is that technology and big data are now at the point where it's lessening the knowledge problem. That's what some say. Uh, and you responded to this a bit in your paper, but I thought you could do so here as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so this is an argument um, 
uh, that that's been made by by Richard Epstein, a, a prominent legal scholar from the United States, uh, among others, I think. Um, and he says that that look, may, maybe um, at the time when Hayek was writing, um, it was true that we just didn't have the capacity for a centralized authority um, to process huge amounts of, of 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 local knowledge and then make decisions on the basis of it. That that we needed these mechanisms of decentralization, property and markets primarily. Um, but, but look, we've now got this sort of big data revolution going on where you have these, um, yeah, it's partly data storage, it's partly um, sophisticated methods of analyzing huge amounts of data. Um, but we've got better tools um, uh, it, it, to, to, to sort of make decisions centrally than we would have had um, before. And so um, one example, and some of that, I think we have to acknowledge, some of that does render certain kinds of local knowledge less um, important. Um, so I think probably the biggest example would be, or the most clear-cut example, would be um, navigation, um, uh, sort of na navigation software. Um, so if you um, want to try, try to get somewhere in a city um, and you don't know how to get there, the, nowadays, the easiest, the best way is to simply punch it into Google Maps or Waze, and you'll get uh, directions uh, based on algorithms, uh, and, and indeed algorithms that draw upon the data of other users in terms of whether there's traffic jams, whether there's um, construction, that will tell you pretty, pretty accurately what the best way to get there is. And that has displaced a form of local knowledge, right? It used to be that certain kinds of uh, drivers in a, in a community, uh, taxi drivers um, especially, uh, people who drove around the city a lot, had a kind of advantage, um, a kind of knowledge from their experience about what are the best ways to get different places at different times. Um, and that would have been... Uh, difficult to communicate to others. It would have just simply been in the hands of these people who had a lot of experience driving in the city. Um, and you know, you could you could look at a map, but it wouldn't necessarily tell you what the traffic patterns are at different times of day or whatever. Um, so there really was a kind of valuable knowledge that was in the hands of people with experience, these, uh, say, taxi drivers. Um, and that's been rendered basically obsolete um, to the extent that it was um, a kind of advantage um, uh, that, that some people had and others didn't, the playing field's been leveled, right? You just plug something into Google Maps or, or Waze and it'll tell you the best way to get somewhere. Um, other examples that are less clear cut would be um, uh, the sort of immense amount of data that that's retailers, especially um, Amazon, are able to collect on people's uh, preferences, um, what they want and sort of compare one uh, shopper to others and come up with predictions about what it is that they're going to want to order. Um, and and that, that I think treads upon some, some kinds of local knowledge that say local retailers once might have had. It might be, it might have been in the past that, uh, you know, a, a retailer would have a certain intuition or, or awareness of what customers in a particular locality would want. Um, and that would potentially give them an advantage. It's possible that uh, a lot of some of that's been eroded um, by uh, the analysis of sort of consumer shopping patterns, um, click through rates on ads, that that kind of thing. Um, so I think there's there's something to this story. I think I think our methods of um, 
uh, making centralized uh, decisions uh, through a sort of centralized authority, whether it's a huge company like Amazon or Google, or, or for that matter, whether it's the government, the tools have been enhanced a bit. Um, but I, I, I think there's still an immense um, amount of space there um, for local knowledge. Um, and, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, for, for one thing, um, you can only analyze data that you're able to collect. And so there's a limit in what kinds of um, data you have. You, know, you might have um, data on a particular um, uh, you know, shopper's um, consumption patterns, um, but that that's only useful to the extent that the future is like the past, right? Mm -hmm. Your data is necessarily from the past. So when you have something new, something that's changed, um, the predictive um, usefulness of, of that kind of data, data analysis is limited, right? So you've got a brand new product, um, you've got uh, uh, something um, that hasn't existed before, let's say, and you're talking about the, the shopping context, um, you're talking about sort of new business opportunities, et cetera, um, your predictive ability using those sort of methods of data analysis are necessarily limited. And that's not a minor thing, right? The world is always changing. Yes. Um, and so to the extent that big data analysis is necessarily backward looking, um, it has limits. Um, so it has limits that are sort of built into the fact that you're looking at what happened in the past and trying to make predictions about the future. Um, and, 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 and that's part of it. Uh, another part of it, though, is that there are just lots of things that there are no data sets for, right? Um, where data is just useless um, uh, to, to, to provide predictions uh, because um, it's simply not available. So when we're talking about some of the questions or the ideas we were discussing before, you know, um, you know, will the will the furnace need to be replaced soon? Um, uh, how are the bedrooms best allocated in this house? Um, uh, you know, what do I need to do to avoid conflicts with with my neighbors in this neighborhood? Um, there are just lots and lots of questions um, that uh, there's just no data for. Um, so data is inherently limited in the sense that it's that it's sort of backward looking um, on the one hand, and it's also limited in the sense that lots of the things we're, we're, we're asking about um, really don't have any relevant data. To, there, there's no relevant data to look at. Um, and that's even more so when you start talking about tacit knowledge, of course, right? If, right. if something can't be communicated by the person who has it, um, then it it's probably not part of a data set that you can analyze. So I think um, I think big data is uh, is a big deal, um, but I don't think it fundamentally undermines the argument that we have a, a big challenge um, in managing resources, which is that there's lots of knowledge and that it's highly dispersed, and that we need a method of dealing with that, and that centralized decision-making on the basis of what data is available um, is not a substitute for that. And, and as you said, this this data, even if you have it and, it, and it's valid, it can change in an instant. Uh, you know, the Hayekian perspective does tell us that a lot of these pieces of knowledge can be updated right at the margin, right at a certain second. So I think that's, and you did mention that before. So I think it's very important to keep in mind that even if you have valid data, a preference can change in, a, in an instant. A whole bunch of people's preferences can change in an instant or something could happen with a resource as we get more into property here that 
that only the people in that area may know for that hour, but someone's relying on an old data set. These are very crucial things to, to remember. We actually have a minute or two before our break, but since I'm going to shift gears in a little more of a harsher way as our next question, let, let's take our break now. So we're going to do that. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Malcolm Lavoie today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustaskatliberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Bryce Tingle, Christopher MacDonald, and Daniel Beer. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Malcolm Lavoie today. Malcolm, I think the, the first part of our conversation is an excellent backdrop for, for local knowledge. We talked a lot about that. Of course, it's really hard not to overlap into private property and property uh, in that conversation, but we resisted diving headfirst into it. But, ne- but now it's, it's time to do that. So let, let's bring the property rights conversation in. Um, and before we get too far on that, I do want to take a second to uh, to discuss a point you bring up in the paper, which is that one of the main thrusts of, of your paper is to get the point across that, yes, local knowledge is a great thing, but this is also a justification uh, for property rights. And, and you you you, ha- you did say in your paper that most, if not all, the classical and usual justifications for property rights almost always leave out the idea that a property owners are simply better informed about their resources and better equipped to make decisions. Am I simplifying that too much? Uh, did I take that away from the paper that it's very hard to find people that discuss this? Or is that indeed the reality? That is indeed the reality. That is, I, um, I, you know, Hayek, um, Hayek's, Hayek is, is, is the exception um, or one of the exceptions. Um, uh, but for the most part, this is an idea that gets, that gets overlooked. And it, and it was, look, it was partly that sort of frustration um, as a sort of someone who teaches uh, property law to law students, um, works in the area of property theory. It was uh, kind of frustrating that what I regarded as one of the strongest, if not the strongest justifications for private property um, was typically just left out of the discussion. Mm. Um, uh, and, and just to sort of sketch out really quickly what it is, the idea is that you have this problem of an important and immense body of knowledge um, that you need to make good decisions uh, about physical resources. Um, and that you can't easily um, go around and collect that that information centrally. And so what you need is a means of decentralizing authority, giving decision-making authority to uh, a dispersed pool of, of, of parties who can then act on the local knowledge that, that only they have. Um, so rather than try and go around and collect the knowledge, you disperse the decision-making authority so that it's in the hands of the people who are more likely um, to have that knowledge, um, and this is an, uh, this is an idea that that Hayek talks about um, as part of a broader argument. It's primarily um, in the first volume of Law, Legislation, and Liberty, um, as as well as in uh, the Fatal Conceit. Um, it's part of a sort of broader argument um, about um, decentralized orders and, uh, and 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 with a strong. Um, linked to, 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 to markets and how markets combined with property rights allow for this dynamic adaptation to, to changing circumstances. Um, uh, he's not primarily focused on pro- providing a, a, a justification 
for property rights, although I think he does so along the way. Um, and so part of what I wanted to do with this paper was to highlight that argument for readers, so for readers who are, I think um, in the case of many legal scholars are simply not aware of it. Um, and then to try and show how powerful it actually is. Um, uh, that it's actually, and, and that it's even more generalizable than Hayek himself uh, realized. So Hayek was really focused on on uh, on markets um, and, and and a free market system, um, and and I'm sympathetic to all of that. Um, but the sort of fundamental insight of decentralizing decision making to people who are more likely to have local knowledge that's that's actually separable from the markets argument, right? You can have you can make this argument without necessarily relying too heavily um, on the idea that there are markets. You can talk about um, property serving this useful function, even when you have resources that aren't alienable, that can't be sold in markets. It's still, you know, if you say, say you have, I, you know, I use the example of, of uh, uh, land held by indigenous communities, but you can also think about um, sort of land that's been in a, in, a, in a family for many generations and that they would um, never uh, think about selling, that they don't really use for business purposes. Um, their management of that land um, the decisions they make about it um, are still informed by the local knowledge they have, knowledge that, that no one else has. Um, and so property um, uh, can be understood to be justified by this local knowledge channeling function, even if you don't buy into the rest of, of what Hayek has to say. Um, and that was another point I was trying to get across. And then I, I sort of towards the end get into um, some of the details of how property law can be understood through through this lens. Um, but but as I said, I, I think this is an under underappreciated justification. If you want, I can I can sort of quickly sketch out what some of the more usual justifications for property. Sure, let's are do off. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so in terms of um, sort of economic um, or consequentialist arguments for property, um, there are two uh, that are um, most commonly referred to. Um, and they're both about pr primarily um, about parties' incentives, not parties' knowledge. Um, so the first argument is that if you want to have people, uh, if, 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 you, if you want people to have incentives to productively use um, their resources, um, you need to give them some assurance that they'll get the benefit of any improvement they make. So uh, this sort of classic, classic example, which has been um, made for, for hundred, hundreds of years. Um, uh, it's, it's present in the work of, uh, of uh, uh, William Blackstone, for example, um, is, is essentially why would someone put in all the work of sowing seeds today if there's no uh, way to stop someone someone else coming around at harvest time and and reaping the benefits of of, of what you've done um, and so one of the things that property does um, by giving you an exclusive uh, right to a resource it it, it aligns your incentives um, so that you know that you'll get the benefit of any work or or or, 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 or whatever you produce using that resource um, the other sort of classic economic or consequentialist um, argument is essentially the, the tragedy of the commons argument, uh, which is a little bit different. It basically says that if you have an open access resource, you've got a problem in terms of everyone's incentive to, to overuse that resource, right? So 
Um, there's no there's no single party with a gatekeeping function. Um, you have this problematic incentive to try to derive as much benefit as you can from the resource without um, bearing uh, the full costs that you're imposing. So uh, again, the sort of classic example would be uh, a common pasture. Uh, different people are allowed to uh, bring their livestock there. Your incentive is to put as many of your livestock in there as you can because you don't bear the full cost in terms of um, the damage or the overuse of the field. And so the solution is to give each party exclusive uh, uh, rights to part of the pasture, say, and then you've got this situation where you're bearing the full costs of that, that you're imposing. Um, and as I said, both of those arguments depend primarily on incentives, right? The problematic incentive um, or the problematic uh, situation where you wouldn't have a full incentive to, say, uh, put work into uh, improving a resource, building a building, sowing seeds, whatever, if you didn't have uh, an entitlement uh, that, that could exclude others in the future and this it, problematic incentive to overuse resources. Um, I, I think those are important arguments. Don't get me wrong. I think they're part right. of what, what property does. Um, but I think it's a very, a quite incomplete story. Um, uh, especially, uh, and, and it sort of, it's an incomplete story in a way that, um, uh, sort of lines up with, uh, the sort of the preoccupations of economics in the 20th century, which was really strongly oriented around uh, the sort of rational actor model and incentives, um, while essentially assuming that parties had complete information. Um, Hayek, Hayek didn't agree with that. Um, Hayek uh, takes the position in his, in his uh, sort of famous essay, The Use of Knowledge in Society, um, that when you assume complete information, you're assuming away the hardest part of the problem of economic coordination. Um, and I, I agree with that. And so I think at least as important as that incentive aligning role, perhaps even more important, um, is to put control in the hands of people who actually know about the resources in these important ways we've been talking about. Um, and so uh, th those are sort of the sort of economic justifications and so i think this is a, a, compl a compliment to those in a way other justifications that people talk about one is individual autonomy this idea that you have a greater sphere of individual freedom when you have um you know private property of entitlement to resources again i i don't think that's unimportant um i think it's quite important but i think that um uh, we're, we're missing something in a big way um, when we're, uh, when we're, uh, leaving out this local knowledge argument. And I'll, I'll just say, um, one more thing, which is that, um, one of the things that's so interesting about property, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons I'm drawn to it as a subject of study is that it is so complex. Um, right. unlike sort of certain other legal institutions that are sort of maybe created by a legislature one day, they didn't exist and now they do, um, uh, you know, so administrative tribunals, whatever property is deeply ingrained um, in human societies. Um, positive law kind of piggybacks on our pre-existing sort of moral norms and intuitions. Um, property has been around for a long time. Hayek has ideas for uh, why it comes about that, it, you know, sort of helps uh, a society that recognizes uh, property and, and free exchange is just more likely to succeed. Other, other societies are going to imitate it, et cetera. 
Um, but property has been around for a long time. It's deeply ingrained in sort of our moral norms and intuitions. And the legal system just kind of piggybacks onto that, right? right. We give we give people legal entitlements that sort of match up with these sort of deeply ingrained um, uh, social norms in this institution that's been around for a long time and that importantly wasn't designed for one purpose. So part of the reason we can look at property and say, oh, interestingly, interesting, it, it sort of aligns incentives and oh, interesting, it creates this sphere of autonomy and oh, interesting, it does all these other things. Part of the reason for that is that property wasn't designed for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, property wasn't designed at all. Uh, it, 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 it came about over time through this uh, uh, sort of process of gradual development and, and, and evolution that, that, that Hayek talks about. And so we can look after the fact and say, okay, you know, now that we have this thing, can, wh- what, what, what does it do? Um, you know, uh, how, how can we understand its function in our society? And if we are um, going to have a discussion about whether we should have it, um, what are some of the justifications we can point to? And I think there's a multitude of potential answers, but I also think one of the most important is this knowledge channeling function uh, that I've highlighted. Right, and I, and I really like the way your paper does highlight that. You, you, you talked, and then you even said yourself in the paper that, of course, property isn't all about local knowledge, even though that's the argument you're making in the paper, but that, quote, a complete understanding of property as an institution requires an appreciation for the knowledge function served by devolving authority over resources to particular owners. Yes, but but it needs to be matched with other justifications and consider that context as well. So I'm really happy you went through that because, I, you know, you, you do legal scholarship and Everyone listening, this is a legal scholar telling us, hey, like, you know, this property thing's a little more complex than some tend to think it is. I think a lot of people, um, you know, fall into the trap, whether will- willingly or, or, or not, you know, they read John Locke, two treatises on government or something. And they say, aha, I have my property justification. Then they go to whatever convention and talk about this is why we should have property. But I, I like how you do highlight that this is a, a multifaceted thing. It's an easy word to say, property, and property rights is even easier to say in, in one way. But but again, there's a lot of justifications and a lot of angles to tackle this conversation. I, th- I think that's a very, very important point. I'll, I just want to add one sort of quick thing on that, which is that one of the things that um, property, first year property students find so striking, and in a way it is striking, is that you've got this 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 legal institution, pri- private property, which is the founda- at the foundation of our legal system. You know, um, from uh, you know obviously um, in private relations, contract, tort law, it's foundational. But we also sort of use it as a foundation in in many other areas of law. This is a foundational idea in our legal system. Um, and one of the first things that we end up talking about is, okay, we've got this foundational idea. What, what is it? Like, what is property? What makes something property? And, and one of the striking things is that there's no agreement um, about what property is mm. um, among property scholars. You have some people who say, oh, it's a bundle of rights, you know, um, uh, the right to exclude, the right to transfer, the right to uh, use and manage, whatever. And none of those bundles are particularly important. You can take one out, you can add another in. That's what property is. It's just a shorthand term for all these different things. Others will come along and say, no, no, the fundamental thing about the pro- about property is the right to exclude. Everything else flows from that. The right to exclude is paramount um, and everything else really just comes from that. And you've got others who say, well, no, no, the, the, the essence of property is the right to set the agenda for the resource, to make the sort of fundamental decisions about use and management um, and that everything else is sort of secondary. You've got this disagreement among property scholars 
Um, and you know, this is reflected in in in, in judicial decisions and statute law. Um, where you've got sort of different ideas about what this thing is. We've got this thing that's at the center of our legal system, at the center in a way of our sort of social and economic life. And we don't have a clear sort of concise idea of what it is. Um, and that's sort of a related point, I suppose. But it goes to this idea that sort of it, it developed over time. Um, it wasn't designed by anyone for one single purpose or to do one single thing. It is deeply, deeply complex. Um, and we can, we can try to understand it um, as best we can um, using different modes of analysis. But we have to, I think, um, have an element of uh, intellectual humility when we approach an institution sure. like this. To think that you're never going to find the one thing that tells you what this is or why we have it. Throughout time, there's a lot of lo local and tacit knowledge that went into developing properly as an sure, institution. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have the whole data set. So ultimately, it is an argument that dispersed knowledge, people uh, having command over a resource rather than some sort of centralized authority. This is ultimately sort of a, a bottom-up versus top-down decision-making discussion with with the bottom-up and local decision-making being obviously more effective than top-down decision-making or central decision-making. Um, so I guess I just wanted to highlight that this is ultimately at least the local knowledge justification of property, I should say, is ultimately more of a consequentialist, if you will, argument for property. It's not sort of saying, therefore, this is all morally right. No, not at all. Yeah, no, this th this argument only works um, to the extent that you can say that it's um, more likely to bring, bring about desirable consequences. Um, and, and, and so it's not, it's not sort of an a priori argument that, that it's just inherently good and just for people with more knowledge about a resource to have control of it now no the, the argument is that by um putting control in the hands of people who are more likely to have local knowledge um you are uh more likely to bring about desirable consequences and i think i think there's a few different ways you can frame that so i, I sort of say traditional sort of welfare economic analysis you can say that um, party subjective preferences are more likely to be satisfied when um, decision making about resources is is um in the hands of people uh, who have that local knowledge. Um, you could also sort of make a more objective uh, argument based on the conditions of human flourishing um, if you wanted. And, and I think you could sort of, you could uh, uh, plug the local knowledge idea in there and, and get to that outcome. Um, it, you know, it is, it is only part of the conditions for bringing about those desirable consequences. I, I, sh I should hasten um, uh, to add, um, it's not the case, for instance, that you always want to have maximum decentralization, right? You, you, uh, have resources in the hands of organizations, um, families, but also business firms, sometimes very large business firms. Um, and that can make sense when the, the benefits of being in a larger organization sort of outweigh whatever knowledge challenges you have. So for certain kinds of business operations, for instance, there are big economies of scale, um, big transaction costs that you can avoid by mm. uh, having a big company as opposed to a small operator. And in those cases, you sacrifice some local knowledge, I think, when you've got a, maybe a distant manager who's making decisions, uh, who isn't the sort of worker on the ground. But it's possible those advantages or those, those sort of knowledge disadvantages are outweighed um, by other advantages. Um, and there are also other problems that you need to address, right? Um, one would be, uh, it's not something I dwell on in, in too great detail because it's been uh, considered elsewhere, 
um, but uh, you have to deal still with sort of problems like externalities, right? So just because um, someone has better local knowledge doesn't necessarily mean that they're taking into account everything they ought to be taking into account, say the impacts on their neighbors, et cetera. Um, so you still need mechanisms for dealing with that. And, and there are mechanisms in property law, you know, uh, if you're sort of unreasonably interfering with your neighbors, uh, the tort of nuisance has something to say about that. Um, uh, but also, of course, you have things like land use regulation, etc. Um, and, and nothing in this argument says that any of that is necessarily unjustified. Um, in fact, in, in, you know, it can be a necessary response to some of the problems that you create when you decentralize authority. Um, but I do think that um, uh, the, the advantages of decentralization um, are big enough uh, that they can justify quite a lot of it, even if that decentralization also comes with some costs. Right. And actually on that point in the same vein, I think a lot of people, when they talk about centralization and decentralization, a lot of uh, classical liberals, libertarians, what have you think of, well, we're talking about sort of state authority and then private authority. And we, we do kind of a cut and dry right down the middle of, of those two categories. But you do touch on in the paper as well that ownership concentration, even the private sphere can still pose some problems to you know, everything we're talking about in terms of the advantages of local knowledge. I guess you can think of me, for instance, owning acreage all across Canada, not knowing what's going on in Alberta right now. I'm sitting in Ottawa, that kind of thing, but still holding on to that property. Again, that's not saying whether it's morally justified. I'm not going that direction. But nevertheless, uh, problems of local knowledge and things like that can still come about, even if we're just talking about private ownership, in this case, concentration of it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a spectrum. And it's an interesting sort of corollary that comes out of the argument, which is that, okay, if you're saying that um, you've got this decentralized body of, of, of knowledge, um, and that you need to decentralize authority to give people the opportunity to act upon it, um, it's not just um, you know government bureaucracies that that might be problematic under that heading. Um, highly concentrated private ownership could be as well. And I, I, I make the sort of point that this dovetails interestingly with some work in law and development um, on the idea that uh, you know societies with highly concentrated ownership of of, of resources, especially land, interestingly. Um, that tends to have negative development uh, implications. Um, and I, I, I'm sort of in the midst of thinking about some future work uh, more in the law and development sphere um, on that idea, on how um, we can understand uh, property's relationship to economic growth in part through this local knowledge function. And there are sort of interesting case studies from the 20th century of uh, societies where you had... Uh, highly, highly concentrated uh, ownership of rural land. Um, uh, Japan and South Korea actually are examples where there were efforts to um, uh, distribute some, redistribute that to some degree. Uh, land reform to sort of take the hands out of these sort of absentee landlords and, and, and put them in, a, in, in the hands of, uh, of uh, sort of the farmers who are more likely, I think, to actually be familiar with the, the, the characteristics of the land. Um, this is basically speculative. Um, but it, it does follow logically from the argument that if you're saying part of the benefit of property is that it decentralizes authority, then it seems like it would be a problem if you had uh, the ownership of land be too concentrated. Um, and there's sort of interesting case studies that would seem to confirm that. Um, and, and again, yeah, as you said, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily providing clear-cut 
uh, guidance as to what we should do or, or even saying anything about the empirical question of, okay, how concentrated does ownership have to be before it starts interfering with this process? Right. Um, I, I don't actually know the answer to that, um, but it sort of follows logically. If you're saying that centralized control um, is a problem because you can't properly account for local knowledge, um, then that's a problem, I think, regardless of whether it's private or, or public uh, control. I, I guess the overall message is that whatever um, someone's preferred justification for private property uh, or property rights are, is that, as you said, eventually we, we have to address the problems, whether there's government or not. So the conversation's a lot more complicated than simply saying, aha, I found my property justification. So and another point, actually, on sort of government and authority and central decision making, I sort of found one of the things you actually touched on this conversation as well as, as in your paper is that um, a lot of these conversations tend to naturally and justifiably sort of shift over to all the market facing decisions and discussions, right? What can I do with this water bottle? Who 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 can own this property and, and sell it? And do, do they know better? But a lot of the, the non-market facing decisions that we sort of touched on as well, I think are a very interesting component of the conversation too, um, especially when we talk about basically people having the, the autonomy, right? Over, over their lives. I, I think there's there's a whole sphere of non-market facing decisions and conversation we can have as well related to the knowledge problem. And, and I, when I read that, I thought that was very awesome to start thinking about. Yeah, that. thanks very much. Yeah, I think I think that's so the the argument about property as a sort of foundational component to a dynamic market system that that allows for, um, uh, you know, decisions about production to um, line up with ever-changing circumstances and preferences. That's really what Hayek was focused on, and 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 so and of course that's I think that's part of what I'm saying here. Um, but the part of the paper that I think is a little bit more novel um, is something that Hayek wasn't as interested in. Um, he had he had um, his own larger project, very very impressive um, larger project that he was in, engaged upon when he was writing law, legislation, and liberty, especially. Um, but to the extent that there's a sort of novel contribution in this paper, I think it's that that idea of highlighting um, that this, 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 this thing, this, this local knowledge channeling process, it's also really important um, for non-market-facing decisions, that even when you're talking about property um, that's not actively being part of that dynamic system Hayek was talking about, you know, um, land that's not being used for for production, um, uh, that that's not necessarily going to be sold anytime. You still have an owner, and that owner still has to make decisions um, about the use and management of the resource, um, even when there isn't an intersection with markets. And so, um, it has to make a decision about. Um, uh, you know how the you know some some of the things might sound trivial, but some of them can end up being quite important, right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, how are the bedrooms going to be allocated in this in this house? Um, who 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 would best who would best be able to make use of 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 such and such a room? Um, you know, you can you can think about uh, uh, a family with uh, uh, you know a, a cabin in the woods that they. They hope is going to be a sort of locus for their family for generations, uh, making decisions about how to how to build it, where to situate it, um, uh, making decisions about what they're going to do with this sort of this 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 parcel of land. Those are actually those aren't unimportant decisions, um, and they are decisions where you that are informed in important ways 
by uh, local knowledge. So even when you aren't interacting with the market as a property owner, um, you're still drawing upon this body of local knowledge and making decisions that are um, essentially better informed than anyone else could about that resource. And, and our time is winding down here. So I have one more quick question before we do the formal wrap up. And uh, this this could, I know we could probably maybe spend an hour on this, but nevertheless, I just want a bit of a taste of your thoughts on this. Maybe it's a, a little bit too directly practical or might get too technical, but I was just curious to know, like, what, in general, what do you think could be done better in Canada in the area of private property rights, if, if that's something that we can relate to this conversation even? And I'm totally happy for you to do a cursory glance at it right now and have you back on another episode, just so you know, so we can spend the time. Need. I know talking to someone who's a legal expert with that question is not only a five-minute affair. I know that. Don't worry. <laughs> Maybe it's a teaser, though. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not something I was uh, necessarily thinking about. And, and of course, there are lots of Lots of lots of ideas I could I could draw upon, but it's just a question. Well, what's the most important? Um, um, I, I think I think we are, uh, and this is this is uh, I think uh, in terms of what's actually most significant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in our cities we are are far too um, restrictive in our land use controls, mm-hmm. um, and I think that does link to, in important ways to the idea of of local knowledge. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm not against the idea of zoning. I'm not against the idea of having some kind of mechanism necessarily for uh, addressing externalities that sort of land use decisions could um, could lead to. Um, but I think we have zoned so restrictively um, that we have interfered in really fundamental ways with this process, um, and and it's been on the basis of um, ideas that, in terms of city planning. Um, that that are that have been sort of proved or shown, I think, in in really compelling ways to be harmful. So we have um, sort of single use zoning, right? You have right. Uh, neighborhoods that are, and so what gets a lot of attention is the um, the uh, the restriction on on height and the restriction to single family dwellings in terms of um, uh, the, uh, the the inability to build more dense neighborhoods and and uh and house more people even when there's a ever increasing demand i think that's a problem um but a, a related problem um is that you end up with neighborhoods um that, that aren't really serving what what people what people want um so you end up with neighborhoods where there's there's no there's no cafe you can walk to there's no there's no shop you can walk to there are no restaurants it's just just sort of uh, residences as, as far as you can see. And you can imagine that if you didn't have that restriction, um, that if you you had fewer restrictions at least, and, and you see this in older neighborhoods where these sorts of things are grandfathered in, right? Where you've got the sort of bistro at the corner right. um, or, 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 or the cafe or whatever. Um, but in newer neighborhoods, you, you don't in, in part because it's basically because it's not allowed. You can imagine that if you didn't have such a restrictive regime, you might have a process like the one we were talking about where someone uh, uh, sort of knew his neighborhood, kn- knew his neighbors and uh, decided, oh, you know, th- there's there's a real demand here for a sort of cafe on the corner or something like right. that. Um, where you'd be able to have neighborhoods that could respond in dynamic ways to local circumstances and needs and preferences and, and whatever. And I think the density part, the density idea is part of that. It's part of that uh, ability to be responsive, but it's not, it's not uh, the, the whole story. 
Um, I think there's there's more to it than that in terms of what uh, what sorts of land use decisions could be made if we had a less restrictive regime. Um, so I definitely think that's part of it. Um, there are a few other ideas I think I could I could throw out there, but uh, maybe I'll I'll leave it at that for now. Perfect. No, I think that was a great answer. So our time is is pretty much up here. So let let's bring it full circle by saying what we always say at the end. So Malcolm, we've talked about a lot. Let's bring it full circle. Put a finer point on everything. Ultimately, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on why property rights are so important, especially related to local knowledge? If you want to leave people with one or two things just at the end here, what's the main takeaways? Property is important for for many uh, reasons, uh, something we alluded to. Um, But one of the biggest and one of the most underappreciated is that property decentralizes decision making about resources. And that's important because knowledge about resources is inherently decentralized. Um, One of the most important things that property does is to align control over resources with knowledge about those resources. We have decentralized knowledge, uh, so we should have decentralized control. Malcolm Lavoie, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. It's a great pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.